morning, everyone. I'm reading from yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 1 down to verse 15. I hope that you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Is it not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness? Their end will be what their actions deserve. Thanks, Jenny. Good morning, everyone. Um, I add my welcome to that of Bertie, especially if you're new or visiting. Uh, Wonderful that you've decided to join us today. If we haven't met, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Anglican. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open at that passage, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15, uh, and I will uh, lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in your word, the Holy Scriptures, and that you do that for our good, for our training in righteousness and for our correction and for making us more like Jesus. And we pray that uh, you'd help us this morning to set aside any distractions or hindrances, that we would tremble and rejoice at your word and become more like our Lord. It's uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The topic of false teaching, and more importantly of false teachers is one of the most consistently mentioned issues in the New Testament. At least 18 of the 27 books that make up the New Testament have something to say directly about the issue of false teaching and those who deliver it. In my observation, when it comes to approaching the issue of false teachers, as followers of Jesus we can easily drift into one of two unhelpful extremes. On the one hand, there's the witch hunt mentality, 
We're going to sniff out every last bit of heresy and condemn every false teacher so we can feel really good about ourselves. We're doctrinally pure and they're all corrupt and having pointed it out, we're going to assure ourselves that we're super secure in the faith. Uh, Maybe you've experienced something like that or even tended in that direction from time to time yourself. On the other hand, there's the equally problematic approach that I call the mum's mantra approach. Basically, if you don't have anything nice to say, spot on. We we think that being godly means being polite and not saying anything negative. So we just kind of ignore the issue of false teachers and say things like, "Well, I'm sure they mean well, and who are we to judge, etc." For a lot of people today, it seems that the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. Again, maybe you've experienced something like this or tended in this direction yourselves. But as I've said before, and I'll gladly say again, our experience and our practice is one thing. The inspired Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, is another thing. And the Bible stands over our experience, over our practice. God's Word alone is to ultimately inform the way we think about the issues that it raises. And 2 Corinthians as a whole, but especially our passage for today and also for next week, has a lot to say regarding false teachers. How does God want us as followers of Jesus to approach the ongoing problem of false teachers? Well, today's passage has much to say in answer to that question. Now, I hope you remember from last week, we're up to the point where the Apostle Paul is deliberately distinguishing himself from those people he calls, or he will soon call, the super apostles. That is, false teachers who have infiltrated the Corinthian church. They had apparently made all sorts of accusations about Paul, and last week we gleaned seven important things, seven principles uh, to remember when it comes to weathering a personal attack. And if you missed last week's uh, sermon, I heartily commend it to you. You can get it on our uh, YouTube channel. But defending oneself against slander is one thing. Defending the church against a real danger that threatens to undermine salvation, well, that's another thing. And it's actually at that point that Christians are right to stop being tolerant. The section starts with Paul saying, I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. Why the strange start? Well, he was almost certainly labelled foolish by these super apostles. And so in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, he embraces the label of being foolish, which actually becomes something of a mild put-down to the Corinthians. Paul implies that perhaps he was truly silly to, to genuinely love and care for the Corinthian church given that it looks very much like they're tempted to reject the truth of the apostolic gospel that he brought. And so from verse 2, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The thing that has made Paul afraid, the thing that threatens to make him look like a fool for having a godly jealousy for these Corinthians, 
is that they look like they could be led astray from their sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And uh, sincere and pure devotion to Christ means following him. That, that's just, it's one or the other. You take up your cross to follow Jesus. So being led astray from sincere and pure devotion is like your salvation is at stake. And what is it that will lead these people astray? Well, it's not actually the false teachers per se, but the fact that they tolerate false teachers and the distortions they bring. Look again at verse 4. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Tolerating, putting up with false teachers and their distortions is the big problem. And it's a problem that has, I wonder if you notice, a lot of scary elements. Firstly, notice that it's possible to have an inauthentic experience of receiving the Spirit. When the ascended Jesus first poured out his Spirit, he made sure that the event could not be misinterpreted. He enabled his disciples to speak in languages that people from different regions could yet understand. It's kind of like the opposite of the Tower of Babel. They united against God and he confused the language. Now in Christ they're united and they can all understand each other. But the church on that day was exclusively Jewish. It was a bunch of Jews. You can read this at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Jews from all nations under heaven who were present when the Holy Spirit was first poured out. So, on subsequent occasions, when Gentiles, non-Jews, began to hear the gospel and repent and be converted, God the Holy Spirit decided he'd not only bring them to repentance and faith, but that he'd also give a similar visual manifestation so that the Jewish believers could be absolutely assured that it really was the work of God, the Holy Spirit. He really is bringing Gentiles into the kingdom just as much as they've been brought in. Once the Gentile churches became established, it was sufficient for God the Spirit to bring God's chosen children to repentance and faith without necessarily the need for additional visual displays of his supernatural work. But from our passage here, we see that Paul assumes it's possible for people to receive a spirit that is not the spirit of God who accompanies the preaching of the gospel. Maybe, we don't know, but maybe what was happening was something similar to what I and I imagine maybe some of you might have seen in some church settings up to this day where the Spirit is supposedly received and, and people speak in languages that, well, in this case, nobody can understand. Or where the Spirit's movement is marked by a decisive loss of self-control, which is a dead giveaway that it's not the Holy Spirit. For one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit happens to be self-control. In any event, as we can see from Paul's words here, a false receiving of the Spirit goes hand in hand with a different gospel and a different Jesus. The second scary thing is that what these false teachers are offering is, of course, attractive. Of course it's attractive. Just as Eve, if you remember in the story, saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye and looks good for food, of course it looks delightful. 
Well, so a different gospel presents as something enticing. When you put together all the apparent claims of the super apostles, it looks like we are dealing with the ancient equivalent of prosperity preaching. Uh, People who suppose that worldly success and status is an indication of gospel faithfulness. Presenting as healthy, successful and well-loved is supposedly what makes for good gospel ministry. Elevation of self is seen as the mark of a good teacher as opposed to humility and suffering, which Paul keeps insisting sets him apart. And of course, that initially at least can sound really pleasing, really enticing. Uh, Here's a quote from a modern-day false teacher, I'm not going to say who, that I would imagine sounds very attractive. This person says, and the words will come on the screen, you are destined to reign in life. You are called by the Lord to be a success, to enjoy provision, to enjoy health, and to enjoy a life of victory. I want you to know that it is not the Lord's desire that you live a life of defeat, poverty, and failure. He has called you to be the head and not the tail. Now, I know that when you think about that for two seconds, you realise that, hang on, doesn't this mean that all the faithful brothers and sisters who live in the slums of Nairobi or Bangladesh or all the Christians who've been jailed or executed in North Korea and Afghanistan, according to this teaching, have not truly been called by the Lord? It's ridiculous. But even so, you can see how, initially at least, maybe if you squint, that this kind of thing can sound really attractive. The tolerating of the false teachers, their different gospel, their different Jesus and their different spirit is something that drives Paul, and I would say also God, to a passionate jealousy. So much so that he's happy to go into full mode in order to set them straight. And it's in this mode that he finally names the elephant in the room, the so-called super apostles, and highlights their ungodliness by contrasting his own behaviour to theirs. Verse 5, I do not think that I am the least inferior to those super apostles, which, by the way, is the first time in this letter that he names the false teachers. Well, names, he gives them a, a category. Now, it's obviously the case that the Corinthians know exactly the people that Paul is talking about and that they've claimed, apparently, to be far superior to Uh, Two of the reasons they consider themselves superior is that one, they are trained orators, that is trained professional speakers, and two, that they consider their performances, their their speeches I guess, worthy of payment. Verse 6, I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I need. And just as a by the by... I'm reasonably confident to say that's more than simply financial needs. We've gone a lot about money in in, in 2 Corinthians, but there's more than just giving money. I think they supplied other things. Continuing verse 9, I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way 
and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Archaea will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Translation, big summary of all this. Paul saying, I'm not ashamed of the fact that I did not charge for my ministry. In fact, I went to great lengths to ensure I'd be the opposite of burdensome. And I'm proud of that. I am so, tongue-in-cheek, unworthy of being paid for my ministry that I'll call my support from other churches robbery, which is really kind of more like what the super apostles are doing to you. The way those super apostles ridicule me and show how unlike them that I am, bring it on, it's actually something I wear as a badge of honour, says Paul. Uh, I've heard that if you're a singer or a musician or a DJ uh, who does wedding gigs in particular and if you're not, you're not getting very much work, a way that you can get more work is to, would you believe, increase your advertised rates. If you're more expensive to hire, people in the wedding industry assume you must do a really top-notch job and when it comes to the big pagan wedding day, which, you know, Many people foolishly ascribe so much more importance than is due. Then, of course, only the best will do. And so they spend the money. Need more work? Charge more money. By charging more money, you're effectively talking yourself up, you see, which is the kind of thing that, of course, the pagans are going to chase after. But here, Paul is saying, I do not belong to this fallen world and the way it operates, but to the kingdom that is not of this world. I follow the one who had no place to lay his head, the one who lowered himself to be a slave and to suffer the death that you and I deserve. I'll gladly talk myself down and do what I can to not charge you anything. The other really important thing to notice in this slab of text here is that the driving motivation between Paul's unhinged conduct is not only godly jealousy, but also here, of course, love. Love that doesn't elevate the self, but the other. Love that sacrificially bears burdens in order to benefit the other. Love that looks very much like what you see in the person and work of Jesus, who would suffer in order to present sinners like us, pure in the sight of God. Interestingly, elsewhere, Paul instructs the young church leader Timothy to stamp out the work of false teachers so as to promote, what do you know, Christ-like love. 1 Timothy 1.3, there it is. Paul would write in another letter, I urge you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see a loving leader and a loving church see, as part of their Christian walk, a great importance in making sure that false teachers are not tolerated, which means they obviously need to be identified and therefore avoided. The elephant in the room has been named, and yet it's godly jealousy and godly love that have led Paul 
to that point. And you can tell he's being loving even as he condemns the super apostles and frankly the Corinthians for indulging them because of the way that he's conducted himself toward the Corinthians in other matters, such as choosing not to be a financial burden on them. And with that, we come to the really pointy end of the matter, whereby Paul has moved decisively now from defence to attack. Verse 12, and I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. In other words, Paul will keep endorsing and validating weakness and hardship. He will keep sacrificing for the sake of elevating the others rather than himself. He will keep boasting in his weakness. He will keep resolving to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified, as he said back in 1 Corinthians. And one of the reasons he'll do that is not only to see these Corinthians firmly established in the faith, but also, as he says, to see that the false teachers have the ground cut out from under them. And why will he shamelessly show up and contend with these super apostles in order that they are rejected and condemned? Well, verse 13, here's why. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Now, brothers and sisters, there is no getting around this, uncomfortable as it may be. The authorised ambassador for the risen Jesus, namely the Apostle Paul, indicates that we can expect Christian teachers who are in reality servants of Satan and therefore are destined for hell. Christian teachers who are serving Satan, Christian teachers who are going to hell. They do a good enough job of masquerading, even as apostles of Christ, that genuine believers can be misled and compromise or even lose their pure devotion to Christ. An obvious question to ask at this point is, of course, how can you know? which teachers are legit and which are false? Well, the answer's already become at least half apparent as we've looked through this passage and others. We, we will see in the coming weeks, as well as what we've seen already, that there are varying degrees of emphasis both on theology and on conduct. Theology and conduct. They're the two litmus tests, right? Uh, we've seen there's a different gospel different Jesus can be taught. But we'll also see, particularly in next week's section, that these super apostles can enslave and exploit and take advantage of their hearers. They can put on airs, i.e. act as if they should have their great authority recognised, and even assert the dominance uh, that they have over their hearers. We see that in verse 20, that's for next week. As unpalatable as we might find it, the Word of God makes it clear that False teachers are heading for hell and are not to be tolerated in the household of God. They can be identified by both theology and conduct, varying degrees of one or the other, and godly jealousy 
and Christ-like love, definitely here, and I would argue in the rest of Scripture, are the reasons for and shape the way in which we reject false teachers. But what about us here and now, 21st century? Well, in Australia, throughout most of the 20th century, the biggest flavour, if I can put it that way, of false teaching that I think posed a threat to Bible-believing Christians was uh, what I call, or what people will call, theological liberalism. The idea that the Bible ultimately is not the Word of God, but needs to be subjected to human reason. A brilliant and tragic example of theological liberalism could be seen in the ministry of the Anglican Archbishop of Perth, from 1981 to 2005, a man named Peter Carnley, regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which we affirm this morning in the Apostles' Creed, Archbishop, this is Anglican, Archbishop Peter Carnley said, Paul and Matthew may have believed that the resurrection was physical, but they were men groping towards the truth as we are and conditioned by time, their time, as we are. And again, the best we can do is conclude that the assertion of the resurrection of Jesus is one possible interpretation of the available evidence. The story is a sign which alerts us to the possibility that Jesus was raised. This is an Anglican bishop, an archbishop. Today, from what I can gather, 21st century, the biggest flavour of false teaching that currently poses a threat to Bible-believing Christians in our neck of the woods has got to be what's called the Word of Faith movement, which encompasses, of course, the prosperity gospel. Now, I'll talk about that in just a few moments, but first, I think it's important to stress the thing that guards against the influence of false teachers, and that is quite simply apostolic truth, the truth handed down from the apostles, if you like. That is the teaching of the apostles, including Paul, which we now have in a permanent written record, i.e. the Bible. I know I'm going to sound like a broken record when I say this, but it is for this reason that systematic reading and preaching of the Word of God is a make-or-break issue. You're going to visit a church and think you're going to join? The question to ask is, is it the normal practice to preach 2 Corinthians 11 this week and therefore next week to preach 2 Corinthians 12 and therefore the week after to preach 2 Corinthians 13, etc.? Now, very notable exceptions include topical sermons. I'd have even have a quarter of the year up to, to, to non-systematic, but the normal practice is this week, it's, uh, here, let's choose something, Job 39. Next week, Job 40. It's going to be read and it's going to be preached on. That systematic Bible. It means that the Word of God sets the agenda. It means that stuff that I might not choose to speak on, well, tough rocks to me. If it's in the Word of God, then the whole counsel of God is given for the feeding of His sheep. I must preach on it because the Bible sets the agenda, not me. I drop dead, the next guy comes and picks up where I left off. 
See, it's not about me. It's about the Word of God. The moment you don't have that, the moment systematic reading and preaching is not the normal practice, well, then the authority resides in the preacher. That's apostolic truth. Now, I've highlighted a serious area of false teaching within our own denomination. One of the biggest threats from the outside, though, from outside our denomination, has, as I said, got to be the word of faith movement that goes hand in hand with the prosperity gospel. Now, the word of faith movement, if you distill it finely enough, which actually takes a bit of effort, holds that man having been made in God's image, in Latin we call it the Imago Dei, because theologians like Latin, if you're made in God's image, well, man is, of course, therefore able to speak things into being. There's even a name for this. It's called the Doctrine of Positive Confession. Uh, Further, that as we are made in God's image, or as little gods, and I kid you not, the Doctrine of Little Gods is a real thing, it should be evident that we should not be sick or poor or misaligned. Such things can therefore be averted through positive confession. I speak as a little God against this sickness, therefore it is gone. And not only through positive confession, but also, of course, through giving money, which God will bless and return in dividends. And yeah, there's a word for that too. That's the doctrine of seed faith. Usually those who espouse these views also attribute roles to God the Holy Spirit, not surprisingly, that, that are foreign to Scripture. And they relegate it as something to experience, particularly with this thing called the doctrine of spiritual ecstasy. The role of the Spirit is to sort of hype you up, uh, which when you come back down is not so good. The prosperity gospel, which is, I guess, a subcategory of the Word of Faith movement is probably better described as over-realised eschatology. But with such a big nerdy-sounding word, you can see why people just call it the prosperity gospel. Eschatology is the study of the last things. When Jesus returns and those who have had faith in him will be united with him for all eternity in heaven, there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness. That's the eschatology, that's the end to which Christians are on a trajectory. But when you over-realise it, when you bring that into the present, well, as a follower of Jesus, I should not have sickness. I should not have poverty. And if I do have sickness or poverty, obviously I'm not a very good follower of Jesus. What a horrendously heretical teaching. But there it is, that's over-realised eschatology, that's the prosperity gospel. Uh, as far as I can see, on account of the speakers they platform, again, in our neck of, the, uh, neck of the woods, the annual Hillsong Conference. Put up your hand if you've heard of the annual Hillsong Conference. Yeah. Has easily got to be the biggest promoter and propagator of these false teachings in Sydney, if not really in Australia. Uh, it's blatantly obvious for those that know of these names that uh, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Stephen Furtick all hold to and espouse a word of faith theology. Kong Si, sorry, Kong He, Joseph Prince, 
clearly hold to and espouse prosperity theology. In fact, that dreadful quote I gave from earlier was from uh, Joseph Prince. T.D. Jakes is known as a oneness Pentecostal, which means he rejects the doctrine of the Trinity. All these speakers have been keynote speakers at Hillsong's annual conference over the last decade. And we should both desperately pray for their repentance and conversion and, frankly, strongly discourage any Bible-believing Christian from attending, from endorsing that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, we go a step further. Um, you probably know that I think this, but congregational singing, well, I don't care that I think this, the Bible says this, is a ministry of the Word. You don't believe me? Compare Colossians 1.28 with 3.16. Colossians 1.28 with 3.16. You'll see the way that Paul speaks about his gospel ministry is echoed in the way he imagines congregational singing ought to take place and function. How can you, at the very point when you're engaging in the ministry of the word and prayer in which the word of Christ should dwell among you richly, be knowingly funding and endorsing false teachers? It's ridiculous. It shouldn't even be a consideration. But I'm sad to say in so many Anglican churches, thankfully not this one, that as part of the standard fare of congregational song, we have Bethel, we have Hillsong, we have some of the, the Word of Faith guys, Louis Giglio and stuff like that. No. Just because you like the sound and the feel, that's an irrelevance. It's compromising the purity and the devotion to Christ. Back to our own neck of the woods again, though. Another big problem in our denomination is the rise in claims of bullying amongst clergy. And it's here that we need to learn an important lesson that we so easily forget. Who's heard of the three C's of ministry and leadership? Three C's, all right? If you haven't, here you're ready. Character. Is that the C for you? <laughs> Character. <laughs> conviction. Competency. Character, conviction, a godly leader, he's got to have good character, he's got to be convicted with the truth, and he's got to be competent to do so. Which is the most important C? Without question, character. Character, character. You can be the best preacher, the best theologian, you can do the best spreadsheets and financial stuff. You can, if your character is bad, if you're not good with people, if you're not gentle, then all that's for nothing. Character... Why do we listen to me and Jono when there's far better preachers out there that we just stick on YouTube and put them on the video? Why, why, why do we do that? Why, why don't we have, like, you know, Alastair Beggs or John Woodhouse? Why don't we stick them on the screen instead of having me up here? Well, it'd be a better sermon. You want to know why? It's because they're far away. You can see the performance. You, can see, you don't know the person. You don't know what they're like day to day. You don't hang out with them. They're not going to have morning tea with you afterwards. See... If I suddenly get real dodgy, you know, start doing something really nasty that I shouldn't, there's much greater chance that you will pick up on it than you will if one of them starts doing something real dodgy, isn't it? It's the relational element is actually really vital. It's a big problem that we keep blinding ourselves to the importance of character and we let people who actually are not that gentle, even though they're theologically brilliant, behind our pulpits and in positions of church leadership. Um, my dear wife works for the PSU, the Professional Standards Unit of the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, and 
Ask her. She'll tell you. She won't tell you details because that would be breaking confidence. But she'll tell you there's a problem with bullying. And it's hard because what constitutes bullying? I don't know, but you just know that the guy's constantly not gentle. He's constantly marginalising people, doing things that put people offside. To counter that, and this is the final application, I find it's a, a real helpful approach in the issue of, I guess, managing or dealing with, with false teaching and false teachers it, that, that stops us from going either into witch hunt mode or to mum's mantra is to get the right relationship between head and heart. See, one of our big problems is we're usually soft-headed but hard-hearted. We get sucked into things, but we're actually, you know, it's not doing anything for our, our sinfulness. But we ought to strive constantly to get it the other way around. You ought to be hard-headed but soft-hearted. Surely that's actually a fitting description of the Apostle Paul who imitates our Lord Jesus. You see, Paul would fiercely condemn the false teachers. You think what's here is bad. You want to tell me, I'll tell you some other ones. I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves, says Paul in Galatians. Or you ever read Jude or 2 Peter, waterless clouds, twice uprooted, you know, the servants of the devil. Jesus himself, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. When you do, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. That's Jesus, that's Paul. And yet, especially with Jesus, of course, but also with Paul, whilst he's amongst the Corinthians, he came, and you can read this in 1 Corinthians, in weakness, in trembling, so much so that he was accused by the super-apostles of being timid when face to face. That's a way to get things around. One of my favourite preachers uh, made himself a lot of enemies because he spoke the truth pretty relentlessly, and I went to see him in person. And he was the most warm-hearted, gentle, smiley guy I've ever met. It's unbelievable. And that made it easy for listening, you know, when the next time when he condemned something, you went, yeah, this guy's full of love, he's full of grace, he's full of generosity. I believe him when he goes, you know, all guns blazing. Now, I have at this point say something nice in conclusion and pray. But I also want to recognise that, well, here I am, in weakness and trembling. I've said some things that might have ruffled feathers. Bertie can't stop me because i got the microphone. If you want to ask a question, <laughs> before I do that, you are welcome. If there's something burning, you want to you fire a question, of course you know you can do that in private on the, the QR number one. Number one? Yeah, something like that. But if you want to ask something now, you're very welcome to do it. I'll give you 10 seconds. If anyone sticks up their hand in 10 seconds, I'll answer a question or I'll attempt to answer a question. If not, I'll pray and I'll uh, sit down. Ten seconds starts now. Don't be shy. Yes, brother? I'll rep more of a statement. When your life, when you live in accordance with what you preach, I think you garner a lot more trust. Now, you are absolutely right. You know why you're right? Because that's what the Apostle Paul says. You say it in uh, 2 Timothy by which I may be one Timothy. No, I'm feeling two Timothy right near the end where Paul says to him, watch your life and your doctrine closely for by doing so you'll save both yourself and your hearers. If someone's really good at those references, they could yell that out or look at that. Watch your life and doctrine closely. I'm feeling two Timothy. Could be... Da! <laughs> one Timothy, four. Well, I was in the ballpark, right, you know? There we go. Anything else? 
Oh, yes, brother. Uh, you reduce the amount of credit you give in proportion to how little of their character you may see. An easy way of putting that is just keep showing up to church and listen to real people, right? And sort of keep that stuff at a distance. Now, consider it as some... Ravi Zacharias has said some amazingly good and helpful things. So has Mark Driscoll. Uh, it's not like the fact that those guys turned out to be super dodgy somehow has contaminated you for having listened to them, right? Uh, but whenever I hear someone like that who I don't know, who I don't have some sort of relationship with, I keep it at that level. Um, unless you listen to them for hours on end every day and you can slowly work out something about their character, uh, which would be a waste of your life. I mean, you can, it's, it wouldn't be a waste of life to do that with, um, say, some of the Puritans who wrote extensively and you can get a whole book of, you know, Jonathan Edwards or John Owen or Richard Baxter. You re read that stuff and you can get ten books of them and go, yeah, I'm pretty sure this guy's legit because... Of, yeah. But, yeah, keep that distance and keep coming to real people. I, I'm sorry it's me that you've got to put up with and Jono. I'm less sorry for Jono, you know. And I think next week Mick, Mr Hines is going to bring the word to us. Is that right, brother? Yeah, I hope he knows that. <laughs> Thank you, brother. No pressure. Uh, no pressure. Um, Can you also say, if, if the impact doesn't share, to ask someone you trust to do much of it? Or, like, I've never heard of a guy who would talk to you. What do you think? Yeah. Thanks, brother. You should preach here next week. <laughs> All right, shall I conclude in prayer? I shall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word that, uh, amongst other things, protects us and keeps us with a pure and sincere devotion to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, may we be as bold as we are loving and as loving as we are bold when it comes to approaching the topic, the ongoing issue of false teachers and what they teach. Uh, Father, may we not be deceived, may we recognise that your word is truth and may we hold unashamedly to apostolic truth. Uh, may we, on account of both a godly love and even a godly jealousy for one another, uh, protect one another from the influence of false teaching and false teachers and may we yet, like Paul and Jesus, uh, seek repentance, uh, seek to do things uh, driven by love uh, to see more people come to know uh, your saving grace in the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.